is an orange alert day. You can't be too careful. Actually, I'm really, I'm really glad that the, uh, the war seems to be winding down so that the world can focus on my new book. Timing, you know, it's all about timing. I'll, I will be signing these uh, out in front there after the performance. So, And a lot of what I will be talking about tonight uh, comes directly from that book. Basically, tonight I want to tell you some stories about you and me and life and the universe. And in telling those stories, I want to raise some basic questions about who we are, where we come from, where we might be going. So there's a lot to cover. So let me get started, and I want to start at the very beginning, the beginning of all of our stories. In the beginning, there was nothing. And it was good. In the beginning, there wasn't even any space, so there wasn't any place to put anything. And it was good. And then there was a big bang. But if there was nothing, what bang? Few scientists noticed this incongruity, decided there was something. There was a dot, a singularity, a point smaller than an atom. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists, this is a new creation myth, so we want to get some pomp into it. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists, that 15 billion years ago today, why not? 15 billion years ago today, that dot exploded, and out of that explosion, space came streaming, enough space to contain an entire universe. Time came streaming, enough time for a universe to be born, grow old, and die. Out of that explosion came elementary particles and forces, and they began mixing and morphing and changing and eventually creating billions of galaxies full of billions of suns and planets and the earth and all the forests and mountains and oceans and buildings and people and animals and bicycles and cars and shoes, socks, everything, purses, zafus, everything you can know of and name and it all came out of the explosion of that tiny dot much smaller than an atom. Either that, or there's a God who created everything in six days. Take your pick. Here's an image for you. A trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was three yards in diameter. That was it. The universe you could get your mind around, you know? You could even take it home, put it in the corner. Now, one scientist estimates that the universe is 10 billion trillion trillion cubic light years large. Sound about right? I think it's close. They used to believe that there was this gas pervading the universe called ether that kind of held everything in place out there. Now, they know there's a gas pervading the universe, but it's helium. So my voice may actually be an octave lower than it sounds to you right now. 
Maybe we all have very deep voices. We just haven't heard our real voices. They just declared a, a little while ago that the universe was beige. Did you hear that? Kind of looks beige in here, doesn't it? Now, it may seem like there's a lot of stuff here in, in the universe. Uh, especially with all the galaxies full of suns and stars and everything. But there really isn't much stuff here at all. Because everything, all the ordinary matter that we can see, is made out of atoms. And atoms are mostly empty space. If you take the nucleus of an atom and put it down on the floor here and blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a pea, the electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a dust moat and it'll be a half a mile away. There's no matter to matter, almost. 99% of matter is empty space. So if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. Maybe we're all just optical illusions to each other. Of course, now they've broken the atom down into three elementary particles. Quarks, leptons, and gluons. I don't know exactly how it works, but I think the gluons hold the quarks and the leptons together. That's the way it sounds anyway. But they say that that's all there is. Quarks, leptons, and gluons. That's what makes up all the matter in the universe. So why does it look like there's so many different things? You see, every time they solve a mystery, they create another mystery. And take, for instance, antimatter. They've found a whole lot of antimatter out there. And every time a particle of antimatter meets a particle of matter, they annihilate each other. I think the discovery of antimatter is proof of God's ambivalence about creating the universe in the first place. Should I? Particle of matter, shouldn't I? Particle of antimatter, you know? Couldn't decide. But the discovery of antimatter raises some important new questions. Now we not only have to ask what's the matter, but we have to ask what's the antimatter. <laughs> and does it matter? But of course, there's really nothing here at all. No, it's just because right at the very core of matter, they found energy e equals mc squared. There is no ultimate solidity. Everything is in process. As one physicist put it, matter is just gravitationally trapped light. So we're all just beings of light, as the mystics have always told us, you know. There is no thingness. I think it's the ultimate irony that in a civilization so devoted to materialism that our scientists should discover that matter may not even exist. We're an illusion chasing an illusion. As the Buddha said, so shall ye view the world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. The scientists would agree with the Buddha. Now they have the latest theory of everything. 
which is the superstring theory, which says that everything is made of these tiny, minuscule, vibrating strings of energy. So in order to tell one thing from another, you just go check out the vibes. We knew a few things back in the 60s. So what's going to happen to our space-time universe? The scientists know that it is expanding rapidly in all directions, and maybe even the expansion and maybe even be accelerating due to this strange new dark energy. And for now, they believe that it will expand forever into nothingness, which the scientists call a cold death, a really big chill. However, if there is enough weight, enough gravitas, perhaps, in the universe, then the expansion will slow down and everything will begin contracting again in a process that they call the big crunch. And everything might come and collapse back into a singularity again, which they call a heat death. Which do you prefer? The universe is going to get you coming or going. I like the idea of us all coming together again into a singularity, because then maybe there'll be another Big Bang and we'll all be reborn into another space-time universe that has less friction and less troubles. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had Tibetan Buddhist, in the Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, if they had the Big Bang in there. And he said, Mm, oh, yes, but it bang, 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 many bangs, many universe. It's a poor imitation of the Dalai Lama. But the Hindus believe that their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eye, a universe is destroyed. Every time he opens his eyes, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually works. But here we are, we're big banging away in this particular universe, and we are literally big banging away. You know, every time you move your hand or take a step, you are expressing that primal energy generated by the big bang. Right now, inside your brain, there are millions of synapses firing, we hope. But that's the energy of the big bang trying to comprehend the big bang. We're like pieces of the universe wondering about itself. And for now, at least, on the surface, we're all doing this strange dance of matter. There's a dance everybody is doing if they like it or not Even when you're sleeping you're doing it You just can't stop You may not know how to make the moves But every single part of you is in the groove You're doing the subatomic shuffle Your electrons are spinning around They do it all night 
Your left arm's a leaping too, or two to left and two to right. Your photons are flashing on and off, and all your antimatter is real gone stuff. All doing that subatomic shuffle. Well, step inside of matter, you'll find a mad hatter. He'll pull you out on the floor. You'll be quivering your quarks while you're dancing in the dark. Your super strings will vibrate more and more. Doing that subatomic shuffle. Now everybody's dancing with you. Everybody's in step. The walls are dancing too, and the ceiling is hip. You may think there are things that are not alive, but look a little closer to subatomic jive. It's a subatomic shuffle. Now inside this dance, you could even find romance. Maybe get into an atom just for two. And if your attraction is strong, and you really get along, you'll find a charged particle coming at you. Wants to do that subatomic shuffle with you. You know it's much better with two. The subatomic shuffle. Now they say your atoms keep moving after you're dead. Some say your mind keeps moving too after it falls out of your head. The scientists will tell you that nothing dies. You can't stop dancing even if you try. Can't stop doing that subatomic shuffle. It's the ultimate bebop. To be or not to bebop. The subatomic shuffle. Thank you. Thank you. So we're doing the subatomic shuffle, shuffle, big banging away here in this human form, this human life. And uh, we try to put a good face on it, make out that life is beautiful and serves some higher purpose. But it's also quite possible to have a somewhat dark and cynical attitude toward life. I've been struggling with that my whole life. I consider myself a cynic in recovery. Because let's face it, life is hard. That's why I love the Buddha so much. You know, he starts his whole teaching with the first noble truth. Life is full of pain and suffering and disappointment and dissatisfaction. And especially if you take it all too personally or take it all too seriously. Which is why it's so great to know that first noble truth. Because then you realize it's not just you. You have not been singled out for special punishment. We are all in this together. And I think it's uh, very useful as a kind of group therapy. I like to go through the basic facts of life. So let's go through them together. First of all, 
you didn't ask to be born, or at least you don't remember asking. And when you're born, you get this very powerful survival instinct that makes you want more than anything else to stay alive. So you don't choose to be born, you can't choose to die. So it's like nature trapped you in this life. You don't get to choose who you're going to be. You don't get to choose your body. I don't remember any catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Just, you know, standard issue. This is it. Bipedal, mid-sized mammal. You don't get to choose your personality. It's the, uh, the genetic scientists say that we're all born, born with a certain temperament to be aggressive or withdrawn or novelty-seeking or reward-dependent. And the psychologists say whatever part of our personality isn't set at birth will be fully determined long before we have any choice in the matter. Which brings us to the fact that we don't get to choose our parents, the dear ones who will set our lifelong neurosis for us. Many of us believe we got assigned to the wrong pair. But we don't get to choose our body. We don't get to choose our personality. We're not free to be who we are. We're forced to be who we are. And then consider you've got to feed this body a couple times a day, which means you've got to work, you've got to think or schlep or, or hunt. Uh, you have to fight gravity every time you get up in the morning with every step you take. And you're not told why you're here exactly or what exactly you're supposed to be doing while you're here. You have just enough consciousness to know that you do exist and that someday you will die, which you very much don't want to do. These are the facts of life. As Wavy Gravy says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny. I think Nietzsche put it well, too. Nietzsche said, God's only excuse is that he doesn't exist. <laughs> we also don't get to choose when we'll be born. And that has so much influence on who we are, how we feel about our lives, how we behave. And here we are, big banging away in the year 2003 A.D., that's, of course, if you follow the Christian calendar. Some of us, you know, are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Jews. I, I don't think it's fair that we should all have to follow that calendar. Really. It should be a separation of church and date, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, the Jews just celebrated the year 5763. We're having another decade of the 60s. You should go out in the desert, find a burning bush, and smoke it. <laughs> but calendar is just a way of marking human history. So why don't we bring everyone together and start a calendar counting from the beginning of our species, which would make this about the year 5 million. It'd be a little hard to write on your checks, but it would give us more of a sense of, you know, us all being together in this process. Of course, if we're all part of the Big Bang universe, then it's the year 15 billion. Uh, of course, if you're Hindu or Buddhist, 
with all those universes, you don't know what the hell time it is. And that's why I think they invented the here and now, because it just makes it all real simple. So, so be here now. Did, were you, did you catch it? it I'll, it'll come around again, don't worry. The here and now, and I now move over to the news desk. This is Scoop Nisker here on KNOW Radio with another commentary on the way things are today. Friends, earthlings, baby boomers, all of you born in the last half century or so, lend me your pierced ears. I have come to praise your generation, certainly not to bury them. That will happen later and all too soon. One problem for recent generations is that the people who lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War have begun calling themselves the greatest generation, and that leaves you with an impossible act to follow. They've also accused you of having it too easy, of being spoiled and whining too much. But you can lay claim to your own Great Depressions and wars with enemies that are more personal, elusive, and existential. You were born into a time of transition, a time when the old gods are being doubted and salvation keeps changing its brand name. You've lived through so many revolutions, sexual, political, scientific, and technological, that your heads are now permanently spinning. As a result, those born in the last half century might collectively be called the confused generations. And there are very good reasons for your confusion. Consider that you grew up in a culture that is doubting its own mythology. Way back in 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story entitled, Is God Dead? And while the editors at Time chose not to answer that question, the very fact that it was raised didn't bode well for the deity. It seems that even if God isn't dead, he's at least having a midlife crisis. Consider that your generations grew up reading about the theory of relativity in school, and even though you still may not have a clue to what it means, it entered your culture as the mantra, it's all relative. And because it's all relative, then what is real and true and good is anybody's guess. So the theory of relativity guided you toward the ethics of do your own thing, and to the recent ultimate one-word summation of relativity, whatever. <laughs> Consider that you lived at a time when the scientists had determined beyond a doubt that your life is not lived rationally, in case you hadn't noticed. And in a famous book about baby boomers called Growing Up Absurd, psychologist Paul Goodman wrote, quote, It was destined that the children of affluence who were brought up without toilet training and freely masturbating would turn out to be daring, disobedient, and simple-minded. End quote. So maybe that's why some of you started chanting, we want the world and we want it now. You were poorly potty trained and prone to tantrums. However, there was good reason for a tantrum or two. Since you've lived all your life with some threat of technological doom hanging over your heads, first thermonuclear war, then the possibility of ozone disappearance. So you have stood in the shadow of the mushroom cloud and also in the harsh light of ultraviolet rays. Apocalypse has been your constant companion through the past 50 plus years. Your generations arrived at a time when technology in all of its forms, the A-bombs and birth control pills and automobiles, airplanes, radios, movies, television and computers were driving and flying and seducing you far away from your homes toward a global village that has no center and no traditions. You grew up in a world of homelessness and uncertainty and all the king's horses 
and all the president's men couldn't put it together again. Some of you who grew up in this time have since been wandering through the wreckage trying to find some spiritual refuge, political sanity, or a mythology that fit the curve of your soul. The search led some of you to a faith in astrology, or Hindu elephant gods, or anarchist politics, or to a belief in rock and roll. But you desperately needed something to hold on to aside from your material possessions which don't really exist. But you have nothing to be ashamed of. You did launch the modern environmental movement, the New Age spiritual revival. You created the Internet. So just as Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, with equal authority, I hereby pardon you for your excesses. And yes, even praise you for your brave and adventuring spirit. And this is Scoop reminding you to keep questioning authority and questioning reality. And if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Boomers, go boomers. We will bring the government down. The boomers will bring the government down in the year 2010 when we start collecting Social Security. <laughs> and if they won't pay, we will march with our canes and our walkers. I have a chant. Hey, hey, ho, ho, now we're old, we need our dough. Hey, hey, ho, ho. But looking at history, you have to acknowledge that many of us living in America in these times, in the last number of decades, we've been living in a golden age, many of us, enjoying a time of unprecedented freedom and abundance. You have been enjoying it, haven't you? And we've also been learning that desire is endless. If there's any one thing that our culture has taught us thoroughly, it's that desire is endless. And satisfaction in life is always geared to expectations. And many of us were given great expectations. Many of us grew up believing we could have it all. Some of us were told growing up, you can be anyone you want to be. Wow. Go anywhere you want to go. Own anything you want to own. Eat anything you want to eat. Have it all. That's right. You could be anyone you want to be. Be the president of the USA. Or be bent any which way. You can be a fool, be cool, be a somebody or nobody home. A contender or pretender to the throne. Be a drone or the queen bee. Be a buyer, a seller, a singer, or a teller of tales, or a lifter of bales. Be a banker, a golfer, a wanker, a rolfer, a CEO, a CPA, an SOB, an MFA. Or really go far and be a rock and roll star. Maybe you could even be a deity. Be God by God. Then you can be everyone you want to be simultaneously. Because you can be, you can own, you can... Oh, you can own. You can own anything you want to own. Own a house or three, maybe 20 TVs. Get a piece of the rock. Why not own a whole block? You could even own a wilderness. And I guess a mountain could be yours and a lake or an island. 
You could even own a country of your own, call it my land. Own a thousand pair of shoes, any cure for the blues, the pills, the thrills. Don't worry about the bills, you got credit cards, checks. You can even pay in dollars if there's anything you want, just holler. Own a classic piece of art, the original rendition or the first edition of your favorite creation. And maybe you could even buy yourself a revelation. Or buy yourself a new start, a new part, a new nose, a new chin, a new heart, a new do, a new you. Cause you can be, you can own, you can eat. You can eat anything you want to eat. You are the main man, on top of the food chain man. You can eat high on the hog, eat the legs of the frog, eat the brains or the stomach or the toes of any creature that you need. And if you don't like their color, you can dye them before you fry them. And if you don't like their texture, you can get them tenderized before you bite into their thighs. Have some fauna, some flora, come on, have some more, have some fowl, some fish, have another dish and don't forget the cow. And how would you like that prepared? In a steak or a burger or a stew or a moo You are the main man, an American man. You can eat any cuisine on the planetary scene. Japanese, Javanese, Indian, Armenian, fast food, hot food, raw food, you got food, so eat. And then go, yeah. You can go on vacation just to visit any nation. Take a notion, get in motion, and just go to the mountains or the prairies or the oceans, white with foam, leave home. Now, you could go to Walla Walla, but I don't know why you'd want to when you could go to Oaxaca or get a nice tilapia in Hawaii or Fiji. But why not go to Fuji and go diving in the reefs or roll yourself a sleeve in Jamaica or take a nice safari to Nairobi or the Gobi or go up the Himalaya to Shambhala or up the Alps to Valhalla. Or go visit the Maori, or go looking for Satori in Japan, man. But if you really truly want to, you could travel to Nirvana. That's right. And escape the desires of this crazy creation. Uh-huh. Get off the wheel of birth and death and reincarnation. Get off the wheel that keeps you always being and owning and eating and going and being and owning and eating and going and Get off the wheel, get off the wheel, get off the wheel. I'm usually in bed by now. It's interesting to note that a generation that had so much to desire would end up wanting nothing less than the end of desire. Like many in my generation, I have been somewhat obsessed with studying myself, trying to find my true identity. Uh, trying to find the roots of a lifelong feeling of alienation. I think mine can be traced back, at least in part, to the fact that I was born and raised the only Jewish kid in a small town in Nebraska. My spiritual path started out kind of flat. In order to teach me my bar mitzvah lessons, 
my parents had to hire a traveling rabbi, a circuit rabbi. Came through town every two weeks on the Greyhound bus, and his name was Rabbi Falik. F-A-L-I-K. Which may be one reason why he didn't have his own congregation. And for my bar mitzvah, I was learning this transliterated Hebrew script, memorizing it. I didn't understand it at all. In order to take part in a ritual to join a community that in my hometown didn't exist. So it was a little confusing. We all have our own confusing stories like that, I'm sure. I did have a spiritual teacher growing up, and that was Alfred E. Newman. And he was the great American teenage tantric master. No matter what kind of cartoon apocalypse was going on around him, all he ever did was grin and say, what me worry? You know, uh, one of the most succinct statements of cosmic realization ever uttered. I studied the works of Alfred E. Newman very carefully over the years. And uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't understand at the time that what me worry was a rhetorical question. Because every time I said it, I would answer back, yes, I, me worry, you know. So, but the grin, the grin, if only I'd have just copied the grin, I think the whole attitude would have followed. I went to college and I studied philosophy, hoping to find some answers to the questions I had about this life, this strange life I was leading. I slogged through all the major Western thinkers, the great philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, Leibniz, Kant, Descartes. Finally, when I was a senior, I got to take a seminar in the existentialists, who proceeded to tell me that all previous Western philosophy was bunk and nonsense. If only I could have taken that seminar when I was a freshman. I would have saved myself three years of thinking. I loved the existentialists. They said that life and the universe were basically absurd, and that sounded right to me. They said at least we humans, with our limited intelligence, can't figure it out. And that was a relief to hear. It wasn't just me that doesn't get it. So I read all the existentialist books. Nausea, No Exit, uh, The Concept of Dread, uh, fear and loathing and the sickness unto death. I had found my community. The philosophically depressed. Because the existentialists weren't happy. You know, they wanted out of their mind. What they wanted most of all was just to be. Camus wrote, If only I were a tree among trees or a cat among cats, I would be at one with the world. It is this insistence on meaning that sets me apart from all things. And Sartre, summing up the existential position and all Western philosophy previous, said simply, being has not been given its due. Unfortunately, there was nobody around to teach the existentialists how to be, no Dalai Lama to say, you know, Camus, just go watch your breath over there for a while, chill out. So they all became martyrs to the game of reason. Lucky for me, as I was coming of age, the Asian wisdom traditions were becoming popularized in the West through hip scholars like Alan Watts, who proceeded to tell me that for centuries the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Taoists had also emphasized not thinking, 
or non-thinking and just being. And they even had devised all these methods that could teach you how to just be. I thought that was so cool. I thought I should let go of my plans to go to law school and go to Asia and take being lessons, you know? Maybe I could get a master's degree in being. Who knows, you know? At the same time, I started reading the Beatniks. And they were also trying to just be, to be with it, to be with every note in the great riff of life. life. They were kind of like romantic existentialists. And for someone like myself who had always felt like an outsider, it was so exciting to read them and dangerous. I'll never forget reading Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, written in 1956. Prophetic poem in which he denounced the god of war and commerce that even then was beginning to take over the soul of this nation. He named that god Moloch. Moloch the loveless. Mental Moloch. Moloch whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch whose blood is running money. Moloch whose fingers are ten armies. Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch whose ears are smoking tunes. But the beatniks were really, even with their challenges to the establishment, they were really trying to start a spiritual revival. As Ginsburg wrote, they, they were beatifically beat. And they went to Asia and they started studying Buddhist philosophy and Hindu philosophy and they started practicing meditation and they started bringing these strange words into the hipster's lexicon. Words like Dharma and Karma and Mantra and Tantra and Om. And it all was so exotic and strange. Finally, 1968, I came to San Francisco to be a beatnik. Too late to make the scene, man. So I got assigned to the hippies instead. And I'm proud to say I was a hippie. I was a flower child. We were wonderful. We were wonderful. For we dragged Bohemia out of the shadows out of the dark bars and coffee houses for a few brief years of colorful, joyous, frolicking in the sun, celebrating the age of Aquarius. Flower children. We were idealistic. We were fun-loving. We were drugged out. <laughs> Thank you for that. We weren't very political. I mean, we didn't, you know, we... We went to anti-war demonstrations, but we didn't have any five-year plan or political analysis. I mean, all the hippies ever wanted was peace, love, and good vibes. Is that too much to ask? Apparently. And the hippies started having B-ins. See, right? You know, in that progression. B-ins, a communal celebration of just being. 1967, the San Francisco Oracle announcing the first human being in Golden Gate Park. The spiritual revolution will be manifest and proven. We will shower the nation with waves of ecstasy and purification. Fear will be washed away. Ignorance exposed to sunlight. Prophets and empire will lie drying on deserted beaches. What a sweet vision. 
simple-minded disobedient, <laughs> but sweet. 1968, I got a job at a hippie radio station in San Francisco doing the news. The station was KSAN Jive 95. I don't know if any of you remember that. Yeah, there you go. This was an unimaginable, today it's unimaginable that a, a radio station, commercial radio station, could be like this. Every morning, live on the air, the disc jockey threw the E chain. Every single morning. And the disc jockeys all had freedom to play whatever they wanted. And they became these amazing collage artists. They would play a B.B. King blues that would segue into a Balinese gamelan and come out with Mozart and end with, you know, the Jefferson Airplane. It was just amazing to, to hear. And quite often live on the air you would hear the unmistakable sound of a disc jockey taking a toke of marijuana. Just, just blatantly doing it right there over the microphone. It's amazing that we didn't get shut down back then, but I don't think anybody took us seriously except ourselves. But there was one story I covered that kind of, uh, I think, captured something about that time. Uh, 1969, July 20th, the day that human beings first stepped on the moon. A hippie out in San Francisco jumped off the gold, took LSD and jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And with very little injury. I went and interviewed him in his hospital room. He said, he, as he hit the water, his body and spirit separated, and he just kind of watched. And uh, he said that he had jumped off the bridge for spiritual advancement. And so I put his, a tape of his voice together with that of Neil Armstrong saying, it's one giant leap for mankind, you know? Because... Because that's the way it was, you know, that's the way it was. It was we were the counterculture. And what they did, we countered with something going in exactly the opposite direction. Even though I was a hippie, I was still plagued with doubts and and dissatisfaction, and I started taking part in the New Age movement that was burgeoning in the Bay Area, late sixties, early seventies, all these Seminars and workshops starting to pop up, offering better health, higher consciousness, take you to nirvana, anywhere you wanted to go. So I tried a lot of stuff. Uh, I got my shoulders lowered. They used to be way up here, really. I got the, I got the crystals in the bottom of my feet broken up. You get that to done? You can tell which ones had it done, you know. The mellow, the mellow people. Um... I remember going to a seminar where I got hooked up to a biofeedback machine and the idea was I was supposed to balance the waves coming off the left and right hemispheres of my brain. You know, I, who knew what, we didn't know what we were doing. We still don't know what we're doing, but you're trying everything. I, I tried a spirulina diet for a while, eating blue-green algae, the original bitter herb. I don't know exactly what I was what I was supposed to get from it, but I got in touch with my inner fish. That was about it. See, you're, you're laughing probably because you've fallen for a million things like that yourself. Do you ever have a negative ion generator in your bedroom? And now it's in the closet, huh? 
for several years, I went around wearing nothing but negative heel shoes, walking like this. I don't know, maybe it helped me be a little detached from things, but supposed to do something to your back. I don't know. Endless, endless stuff. At the, at the same time, around that time, I started going to a weekly Buddhist group. And I, it did start to have an effect. It started to allow me to worry less about my life. But I started worrying about my next life. Yeah. Will I be handsome? It's always something. Always something. Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I hope. But then, finally, 1970, I, I went to India along with this great wave of young Westerners. It was truly, uh, in retrospect, a pilgrimage of historic proportions. Going to Asia to study these ancient teachings and to try to find teachers and Looking for, we were looking for ways, basically, to get high and never have to come down. That was our goal. I thought that I would go to India and find a teacher, find a guru, who would teach me how to merge with the cosmic oneness, and then my painful self-consciousness would disappear and the bliss would kick in. Uh, I thought it would take a few months. You know, I, I was willing to put in the time. But it was common back then for people to think about merging with the cosmic oneness, probably because of the drugs. Because sometimes in, in a stone conversation, you would hear somebody say, well, everything is everything. That was a conversation stopper for sure. You know, just, where do you go after that? Uh, but it's true, everything is everything and vice versa. But, see, it's tricky. It's tricky. There's a lot of paradox in this, in this journey because you already are one with the one, so trying to become one with the one is like playing musical chairs with yourself. But you've got to make some effort or you will forget that you are one with the one. And then once you remember that you are there, you aren't there because they're just the one. You see, the one is very blissful, but no one's there to enjoy it. As Woody Allen says, those achieving oneness can now move on to two-ness. But in India, I did find a teacher. And uh, my first meditation retreat took place just uh, a few blocks from where the Buddha was enlightened. And my teacher was a jolly, rotund Indian man, S.N. Goenka. He used to sing to us every morning and evening in this beautiful baritone Buddhist chants. Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamino. It is the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those can, who can live deeply with this truth. That first meditation retreat was the most shocking experience of my life. I was 28 years old. Nobody in my culture had ever told me that I could actually step outside of myself and actually observe my own psyche and my own mental machinations. And that first look was really disturbing. 
As the sages say, self-knowledge is often bad news. The instructions were very simple. The teacher just said, pay attention to your breath, and that's all. And I would begin to pay attention to my breath, and my mind would continue to think and plan and have fantasies without even consulting me. What was most disturbing was that my mind insisted on singing to me. And not New Age meditation music either. Pop songs with great hooks. Rolling on a river. Or we all live in a yellow submarine. Over and over again. Once a song would pop into my head, it would play over and over. I couldn't shut it off. It was really disturbing. Sometimes if, I, if a song popped into my head that was on an album side that I was familiar with, my mind would track through the album side and flip it over and play the other side. I mean, we all are full of this stuff. I, a lot of people I know have, have mentioned this phenomenon to me. We, we've come up for, with a term for it, jukebox karma. It's jukebox karma. But also, when I first started meditating, and many people I've talked to had a similar idea, I thought I could get myself a new personality. I thought I could become someone who would be easier to live with. But after... 30 years of doing meditation practice, I have basically the same personality. I don't take it quite so personally anymore, my personality. In fact, I've started to treat it a little bit like a pet. Yeah, you know, it's always there. I take care of it. Sometimes I let it off the leash. But I don't own it. It's, my personality is playing out through me, just as life is playing out through me, evolution is playing out through me, breath and heartbeat, more and more I've come to realize that life goes on within me and without me. And I've come to a whole new sense of ease with myself and maybe gained even a little freedom from this, this being with its instincts and its personality. And that's really sweet. As the sages say, once you let go, begin to let go of yourself, you begin to gain the world. And your heart begins to open more and more to the world. And that's really the sweetest gift of all. As Nisargadat Maharaj, the great contemporary saint, says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. In between the two, my life flows. So it's been a great gift to be on this path. When I was in India, I also noticed that a disproportionate number of people doing Buddhist meditation were Jewish. And then I came back here to the States and uh, the first big meditation center started by Westerners here in America was started by Goldstein, Cornfield, Salzburg, and Schwartz. Sounds like a law firm and not a... Buddhist teaching collective. But I began to realize that actually Jews and Buddhists are a perfect complement to each other. You take the detachment and the quietude and the inner peace of the Buddhist and combine it with Jewish sentimentality, worldliness, chutzpah, and you've got a full spectrum emotional approach to life. It could be a whole new religion or a whole new ethnic group. 
the Boorish people. Our sacred mantra would be Om Shalom. Om Shalom. And in the Boorish faith, the wisdom would be transmitted primarily through the use of knock-knock jokes. Yes, you laugh, but it's like Keystone Cops Warfare. It's really fabulous. They're also working on a, on a sonic device that emits an ultra-high frequency sound that makes enemy troops vomit and have diarrhea. I think it's great. We'll have a war where nobody gets killed, just humiliated. You know? Look, the enemy's pooping in their pants. We win. I like it. I like it. Of course, the, the ultimate non-lethal weapon would be a nitrous oxide bomb, you know? Get them, get them laughing and they're yours. But this war, this war has such mythic, historical resonance. I mean, the bombs falling on the cradle of civilization. Somewhere over there in the Fertile Crescent is where human beings first figured out how to farm. That was at least as big a deal as the Internet. Right there near Baghdad between the Tigris and Euphrates, the Sumerians, the first people to count, to write, to study the stars. They even invented money over there. The capitalists should be bowing towards Baghdad. And the bombs falling not only in the cradle, but in the manger in Bethlehem. The Jews and the Muslims fighting, one side invoking the name of Allah, the other side invoking the name of Jehovah. I think someday the skies will part and we'll all hear a voice and it will say, humans, you all got my name wrong. Actually, I think maybe we should all call God Ah, because most of the names of God end in Ah, Allah, Buddha, Jehovah, Krishna, Brahma, Quetzalcoatl doesn't fit in there. Or, but you, also, you notice that there's no image of either Allah or Jehovah, so nobody's ever seen either of them. How do we know it's not the same dude? It could be. Maybe I'm getting into dangerous territory here. <laughs> but we're still playing out as human beings these old myths, these old stories. And here in America, we're playing out the old story of empire. And some of you may be delighted to realize this. Others may not be so delighted. But our Caesars are doing all the historically wrong things. They are playing out the exact scenario of decline and fall. As George Bernard Shaw said, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. So we look back, we see empires rising, falling, rising, falling. Mesopotamian, Sumerian, Babylonian, Egyptian, Mayan, Aztec, Greek, Roman, all once great empires. Now what? Ruins that people climb on and take pictures of. More recently, we had the European empires, the French, British, Spanish, Portuguese. Just a couple decades ago, the Brits were proud to say the sun 
never sets on the British Empire. Now it's just those few chilly little islands in the North Atlantic. The sun never even rises on the British Empire. So the United States inherited all the European colonies. You know, we took them over with television and automobiles and Coca-Cola and dreams too rich to ever be fulfilled. And now the whole world is our mall. There's no question about it. Over here in our mall, we have the European Emporium, where uh, we get our fine watches, fine clothing, fine cars, haute couture, good cuisine, lately a little attitude. Of course, they're our cousins. It's all in the family. It's cool. Over here, we have the uh, Latin American Mercado, where we get bananas, papayas, beef, uh, cheap labor, little syncopation. Back here in the mall, we have the Asian aisle, where we get electronics, toys, cheaper clothing, cheaper automobiles, cheaper labor, and rice, of course. And then here in the front of the mall, we have the Middle Eastern gas station, where we come, fill up our tanks so that we can haul all our stuff back home with us. The entire world is the mall of America. No question, we rule. But even now, at the height of our power, we see these classic signs of decline. This is right out of Gibbon, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The cause of Rome's decline lie in her bloated, overextended military, widespread economic and political corruption, public apathy and hedonism, uh, dependence on an addiction to foreign resources, colonial peoples flooding into the mother country and diluting the dominant culture. Sound familiar? It happens the same way every time. Unfortunately, at the end, in the, in the imperial phase, all the empires desperately try to hold on to their power and privilege, causing great suffering both in the mother country and in the colonies. What if we could do it differently? See that this pattern of history, what if we could change that pattern? Set a new standard for all empires that will follow. I have this plan. It's actually not my plan. I was bored in a meditation retreat. Cosmic consciousness was getting dull. And this plan kind of channeled through me. What it is, it brings together the spiritual and the political in a new movement called Zen Socialism. Zen as in letting go. Socialism as in together. Letting go together. It's really the next step in the dialectic of history. Only this time we stand marks on his head. And in that yoga posture, he sees the importance of relaxation in the coming revolution. You see, the next revolution is the big slowdown and relax. It's got to be. Major part. So if there was a Zen socialist government of the United States, and I assume there will be someday, if there was a Zen socialist government of the United States, we would go to the UN and announce that we are resigning as a superpower. And from now on, we just want to be known as an ordinary nation. It would be great. It would be great. The world would applaud. And it would be great for us. We could let down some of our defenses. We wouldn't be the prime target of terrorists necessarily. We wouldn't have to spend $350 billion a year on the military, which is, by the way, more than the next 10 largest military budgets in the world combined. 
We take two-thirds of that. We could build the most amazing healthcare, education, transportation systems the world could even imagine. And we could all relax. We wouldn't have to be working so hard keeping a superpower economy going. It would be it would be great. We'd just be an ordinary nation. You know, not with our big thumbs stuck up around the world. There's really nothing to fear from this. Remember, Rome didn't decline in a day. And while it was declining, a lot of Roman citizens didn't even notice it was happening. And a few centuries later, they started calling themselves Italians. They seem to be doing fine today. And besides, this would be an intentional decline. So, as we make our transition from superpower to ordinary nation, the government would set into place some temporary public works projects like the Roosevelt New Deal, only this would be the New Age New Deal. I envision a five-year plan called the Great Leap Backward. So the government would set up like a new agency, the Department of Meditation and Therapy, which would set up deprogramming centers around the country that would teach hyperactive American workers how to become less productive members of a less productive society. The government would pay people by the hour to work on themselves. We could all work with a mantra, enough, enough, we got enough stuff, enough, enough, we got enough stuff. We got enough stuff, you got it. Oh, yeah, it would feel good, it would feel good. The government could put people to work also on disassembly lines. Take apart the cars, separate the steel out into ores, and shovel it all back into the ground again. Take apart the unnecessary freeways and parking lots. Get rid of the curse of our lives, the automobile. We could ask India or Egypt or Mexico to like start a reverse Peace Corps. Send us volunteers to teach us how to live with less. How to cook tasty meals of rice and beans, wash our clothes on rocks. Of course, most importantly, when and how to take the siesta. That's what we really need to learn. Finally, we will need some foreign revenue to keep our currency afloat as we make this transition. So, what do we do better than any other people on the planet? Entertain. We are the most entertaining people on the planet. So, as we announce that we are resigning as a superpower, we simultaneously ask the rest of the world and invite them to come and visit and witness this historic moment, the world's first intentional decline and fall. We would open up the entire continent as a vast theme park called Formerly Great America. The downhill rides would be spectacular. Sleep on it. I'll be signing up Zen Socialists along with my book back there. Finally, we're getting close to the end here. I, I want to leave you with some real hope. And uh, so what I think we all could use at this time and into the future is a real shift of consciousness out of the historical moment and into real deep time, into biological time. 
Because if we could see ourselves in the story of evolution, we would find forgiveness and hope and wonder, all sorts of great things. First of all, if we saw ourselves in the story of evolution, we would realize that we are just a baby species. We're just getting started on our history. There were a hundred million generations of dinosaurs, ten million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've only had twenty or thirty thousand generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them real well yet. No instruction manual. At least we're starting to figure out that we are indeed earthlings. Bones are made of calcium phosphate, literally the clay of earth molded into our shape. Body is mostly liquid with the same chemical consistency as the oceans. We literally sweat and cry seawater. Where else did we think these bodies came from? We're not only on the earth, we're of the earth. We're like earth sprouts that gained a, gained a lot of mobility. And we're a brand new kind of animal. And now we realize that we are related. If we see ourselves in this story of evolution, we realize we're related to every being that's ever lived on this planet. Related to the miracle molecule of DNA. Composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how it's arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA will build an ant, or a sequoia, or a rose, or a human being. It's miraculous stuff. Deoxyribonucleic acid is much too cold and clinical a term for this stuff. I would like to proclaim a new acronym. Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine, natural abundance. Because this stuff is miracle stuff. It grows all the beings that have ever lived. And as you may know, you share nearly 100% of your DNA is exactly the same as the person sitting next to you. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as those for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama, George Bush. Our personalities and IQs are just a thin layer of paint over this basic human design. We share nearly 98%, over 98% of our DNA with the great apes and over 90% of our DNA with mice. Most of the instructions for creating you are instructions for creating a basic mammal. And we share over 70% of our DNA with worms and over 50% of our DNA with yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? You see... The story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity. It denies our exclusive divinity. All of life contains the same divinity. And we are a brand new animal. Truly. I hope I didn't offend you. Our eminent scientists do classify us as animals. I think we should be proud to be part of this kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. But many of us are in denial. 
You know, you go to a supermarket or cafe, there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. Humans walk right, right in. No animal here. But we're brand new. Our ancestors just came down from the trees five million years ago, which isn't very long in biological time. And among them was an ape woman named Lucy, who we now consider the mother of us all. So we can presume the father of us all was Ricky. And after hanging out on the ground for a while, we started using crude stone tools. We became known as Homo habilis, or handyman. Yeah. We know we weren't yet Jewish at that phase. These days it's... These days it's impossible to find a good homo habilis around when you need one. But homo habilis started standing upright more often. And very soon we became known as homo erectus, or upright human. And we're not talking morality here. Actually, because standing up was really put everything out there for everyone to see. It was really, clothing came soon after we stood up. You know, the four-leggeds, they have everything tucked in down in, you know, they don't have to worry about it. But standing up was a very important moment in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in brain size. Now, you'd think that standing up would make your feet swell instead. But here's the theory. Because our hands were free to work with tools, spears and axes and chopsticks, uh, we needed more brain connections to coordinate the more precise movement of our hands. So this feedback loop was created. You know, better hands, bigger brains, bigger brains, better hands. Standing up also left our arms free to carry our stuff around. So about two million years ago, we started migrating out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we left, but probably to look for Chinese food. At the time, our brains were only half the size they are today, or else we would have just sent out for Chinese food. But we didn't know. Then, just a couple hundred thousand years ago, I mean, you know, we're talking minutes in biological time. Our brains are still growing faster, a lot smaller than they are today, and probably growing because we got caught in an ice age or two. And we had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. We could have just grown a heavy coat of fur. Been pretty simple. But we didn't think of it at the time because our brains were too small. So instead we grew bigger brain and learned how to make fire and then started sitting around it and telling stories about ourselves. And sometime right around in there, 200,000, 300,000 years ago, we literally got a new head. The skull became rounded and dome-shaped here in front. Probably none of you are old enough to remember the old slope head model skull. <laughs> but the new rounded skull was there to contain the new, new human brain, the neocortex. High speed, fully loaded, raring to go. Finally, 50,000 years ago, our immediate ancestors, Cro-Magnon people, just the blink of an eye in evolutionary time, they began holding elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, obviously having come to some new kind of self-awareness, some new consciousness, having become what we now call 
Homo sapiens, sapiens, or twice-knowing humans. Which means that we know, that we know. Or else it means we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. <laughs> One of the two. But the Cro-Magnon people were also the first people to display a sense of humor, which they got watching the Neanderthals, who weren't, they were very clumsy, they weren't good with their tools, they kept dropping them, and the Cro-Magnon people would laugh, and anyway, 12,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, agriculture, living in cities, the last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution of the life of this planet through the behavior of our species. And now we can fly off the planet and out into space. We can see to the edge of the universe, inside of matter. We know all about physics and biology and chemistry. We know all about our origins. We know all about all the cultures that have ever lived. In just the last couple hundred years, we've nearly doubled the average human lifespan. Now most of us absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime and operate fairly sophisticated machinery and it's a whole new world out there. Just 10,000 years, 30,000 years ago, we, we couldn't have done any of this stuff. And considering that, what we can do now, we're all doing pretty darn good, I think, at being human beings. Pretty spectacular. And considering, you know, what we're given, there's really no one to blame. As the Tibetan Buddhists say, drive all blames into one. Blame it all on evolution. She can take it. Nobody's fault. We're all working with the same stuff, the same equipment. And it seems like we're coming into a new awakening, a great awakening, 2,500 years ago. The Buddha, Lao Tzu, Socrates, our contemporaries, basically, Darwin, Freud, Jung, Einstein, Hubble, we're just coming into a whole new understanding of who we are in the scheme of things, realizing how related we are to all the life of this planet. We're just starting to use our brains better and learning maybe how to use our hearts better. It's very exciting to be a part of this great awakening, a part of this moment, this transitional time. Difficult, but it's exciting. And we are learning what fantastic beings we are. You know your brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. You hardly have to lift a finger. 100 trillion cells inside of you, all working together. Fantastic beings. Sometimes I get discouraged. I think, well, it's taken 15 billion years to make me, to make us. So we're not perfect yet. There's time. We still have a little time. We still have hope. So let me close just by saying that for the sake of our children and for the sake of our species and for the sake of the Amazing experiment, three and a half billion year experiment of life on this planet. Love each other, love, it, love yourself, and then love each other, and then love life.
And of course, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Wait, 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 wait. Let me just close with a song. Maestro, as you go out and make some news of your own, don't forget to smile. Like the Buddha for a while. Let me see you break a grin. Like the Buddha's naked thin. Just a little teaser. Thin just like the Mona Lisa's smile. It does wonders for your skin. Helps get rid of double chin. It could even give your eyes a twinkle. Maybe raise a dimple, a brand new wrinkle if you smile. When you're stuck in the gloom, you can't find any room and your mind keeps pulling its hair. Bring your mind home and settle it on your abdomen and take a deep breath of air and smile like the Buddha for a while. Even though you know the facts, know that there's no turning back. You just gotta taste it. Taste it all and grace it all with a smile. And you gotta confess, the world's in a mess. The change is up to you and me. And to turn it around, you gotta get rid of that frown and become what you want it to be. So smile like the Buddha for a while. Maybe even lend a hand. Maybe even take a stand on love. Let it shine like the sun up above with a smile. And when you cut through confusion, you'll come to this conclusion. Life is still a mystery. But like Alfred E. Newman, you may be tickled to be human and you won't take it so seriously. You'll just smile like the Buddha for a while even though you're gonna die so make the smile a little wry in the end you know the joke's on you too so make the last thing that you do be a smile smile on each other thank you all for coming blessings Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.